Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages, a books and sports podcast. My name is Steven. You just heard from my lovely wife, Liberty. And we have very different interests, so we're going to try to bring each other to the dark side via the news in books and sports. Today is the book episode. Yeah, this is the episode where she definitely tries to convert me as much as possible, and so far Harry Potter's doing an okay job, so... But we'll start with the book news. Yeah. The biggest news to come out in the past week actually happened yesterday, and it's Lee Bardugo's sequel to King of Scars was announced for a March 30th, 2021 release. It will be called Rule of Wolves, and the cover is currently out. It is a white bone color is what they're calling it. And it was kind of a shock for the readers because we expected to have another metallic cover like the first book in this duology. But they made a point about how it's supposed to be a reminder of when all the materials get taken away, reality is what you're left with or something like that. It's interesting. But Bardugo said that this will be the grand finale in the Grishaverse. So that makes me nervous because a lot of people did not love what happened in the first book in this duology. And the Grishaverse is basically three different series, technically. So you have the first three books, the Shadow and Bone, Siege and Storm, Ruin and Rising, and that makes its own trilogy. And then after those came out, Six of Crows and its companion, or sequel, Crooked Kingdom came out. And then the follow-up to both of these was King of Scars, and this one's the follow-up to King of Scars. And it's supposedly going to be the last one. I don't know. I didn't love the King of Scars book, so we'll see. The cover's beautiful. I had to look it up for myself. It's pretty, but it's also a little bit terrifying because the first cover, we're going to take a quick pause so I can pull the book out and show you, looks like this. Oh, very similar. It's similar, but the thing is, like, with this one, it's all gold and pretty and, like, it makes you think of, like, royalty, but also you have these lines running through indicating claw marks and, like, that's supposed to be terrifying. But with the bone white cover, I guess it's supposed to be even more scary. It definitely looks a little eerie, like, horror-y cover-ish. Even in just the white, it's kind of just eerie looking, so it's kind of cool. But I will read you the synopsis real quick, so if you want to know, keep listening. If you don't, maybe skip. The Demon King, as Fjerda's massive army prepares to invade Nikolai Lantsov, will summon every bit of his ingenuity and charm and even the monster within to win this fight. But a dark threat looms that cannot be defeated by a young king's gift for the impossible. The Storm Witch. Zoya Nazjalinsky has lost too much to war. She saw her mentor die and her worst enemy resurrected, and she refuses to bury another friend. Now duty demands she embrace her power to become the weapon her country needs, no matter the cost. Interesting. There's more. Oh gosh. The Queen of Mourning. Deep undercover, Nina Zenik risks discovery and death as she wages war on Fiada from inside its capital. But her desire for revenge may cost her country its chance at freedom, and Nina the chance to heal her grieving heart. King, General, Spy. Together they must find a way to forge a future in the darkness, or watch a nation fall. 
So, like, whoever wrote the synopsis did a great job. I'm very interested. More mm. so than I was when I finished King of Scars. Would we be hashtag hooked on are, that synopsis? We are hooked on synopsis. Yeah. And I don't know. I know that a lot of people didn't like the King of Scars. So, we're, we're not optimistic, but we're going to read it and find out and see where we go. Yeah. If it's truly, like, the final final, then it's silly not to dig into that. Right. Well, I read... The Shadow and Bone trilogy, I read the Six of Crows duology, I read the little, I don't know what to call it, it's like a little bind up of stories that are supposed to be like bedtime stories you got told in this world, so I've read literally everything that she's written within this universe, so of course I'm going to read the next one. And then Death on the Nile, which was a Agatha Christie book is slated for an October 23rd, 2020 movie release date. It's based on the 1937 novel that follows up Murder on the Orient Express and follows Hercule Poirot while he's on vacation in Egypt. He becomes entwined in the mystery of a murdered heiress. And you have Kenneth Branagh, Braniff, whoever that is. He's going to reprise his role for Hercule. And I guess the movie has a lot of stars in the cast, including Gal Gadot. And it's saying that it's going to hit theaters on October 23rd. Who knows if theaters will still or finally be open at that point. Some theaters are opening now, so maybe. Who knows? Right. COVID. I'm thinking they might do some other type of release if they're not open. I don't know. Movies are weird right now with COVID. Yeah, you got like instances like Mulan where it's like, hey, pay for this monthly service and then pay us again to watch it. I don't understand that. They're trying to make their money back from the theaters. Being closed? I don't know. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I'm not going to pay $30 for a movie. Not even to own it. Yeah, on top of the subscription fee of it. Yeah, no. I'll just wait and steal it. Right. Just kidding to anyone listening. I don't steal things. Now, realistically, we'd wait until it shows up in my workplace, and then we'll pick up the very beautiful Steelbook copy of it, just because... I like the Steelbooks that your store sells. Yeah, they're definitely really, really nice, and and good additions to collections. But I didn't watch Murder on the Orient Express. I don't even think I've read this book. But I know that some people really enjoy Agatha Christie, and especially the Hercule Poirot mysteries. So if you're one of those people, that would be something to watch out for, especially since it's supposed to come out right around Halloween, the spooky season. An author named Nikki Grimes is going to be releasing a book about the life of Kamala Harris on August 25th, your birthday. So right before this podcast comes out i would say ooh, happy birthday to me except for i watched kamala harris come through her ranks in california so i kind of already know some of her story well it will be called kamala harris rooted in justice it's a children's picture book illustrated by laura freeman and basically it's written to motivate girls of color to reach for their dreams is what she said it's a great idea i just don't think politics should be in books for children? I don't know. I, that might just be me. I think there's enough of the world of politics floating around the world currently that we don't really need it for children to read. I think children need to know about politics, and I also think she's got a good story being the daughter of immigrants. Yeah, so absolutely. I think it's worth telling. Now, if you're a mother or father who has a child and you don't want them to be introduced to politics, you don't have to get this for a kid. Yeah. I think it's a good story to tell. 
I think it's a good story. I just think it might be a little little soon to be putting in front of children, but I, I get it. I mean, I doubt it's going to go into the nitty-gritty stuff you don't want them to hear about politics. Yeah. So it's probably just about, like, a memoir is her life and her story. Right. And speaking of children's books, the thing that I didn't get to in the sports podcast, because you told me it's book-related, LeBron James wrote a children's book called I Promise, and it's debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's really hard to find a summary for this book, so I'm just going to pull what is on Goodreads. I Promise is a lively and inspiring picture book that reminds us that tomorrow's success starts with the promises we make to ourselves and our community today. I think that's a good thing. That tells me nothing about the story, but all right. All I can think of when you say children's book and LeBron James is that little kid that goes, LeBron James. So I don't know. It's just it's funny to me, I guess. I don't get your reference, but oh, I bet it's hilarious. It's priceless. The illustrations for this one are done by Nina Mata, maybe. And the book came out on August 11th, and it seems to be doing really well. It's staying up on the bestseller list. That's awesome. Good for LeBron, as if he needed more money. He really, really Hopefully doesn't. he gives most of the money either to charity or to the actual artist who drew it, because mm. I'm sure the artist is way underpaid for her abilities. I can almost guarantee that. Yeah. So the last bit of book news I have is Iron Maiden's Adrian Smith has written a unique tell-all about fishing and rock and roll. The book is titled Monsters of River and Rock, and it comes out on November 3rd. The dumbest thing I've ever heard of. I'm not interested in this at all. I am surprisingly interested in this, only because I it's think dumb. it's going to be fantastic. In a way that I don't think you would enjoy it, but in a way that I would, because it was probably going to be so ridiculous... Well, be good. he apparently talks about how while he's on the road, he's like looking at the map of all the places they're going and going, oh, well, I can fish here for this kind of fish. And in, yeah. we're in this place. We can fish for this kind of fish and blah, 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 blah. And apparently he took his fishing gear with him whenever they were on the road. As a kid who grew up fishing, I love the idea of this book. And I love music because you know my dad. Like music, absolute nut. So... I love this. I think it's going to be fantastic. I will agree. Your father is a nut. Yeah. Anyway. Oh. He <laughs> just Hopefully he doesn't listen. <laughs> just kidding. And if he does, sorry. Ahead of time. Sorry, Pops. Yeah. Anyway, no, I think it It sounds like something some people will be into, but definitely not other people, and I'm on the not other people side of this. I literally have like five friends I'm already going to recommend this to, so. Yeah. I didn't even know he was into fishing, and apparently he is, and. In fairness, I didn't know that. Either. It's going to be a memoir about him rocking and rolling and fishing. Rocking and rolling and uh, fishing. <laughs> it's going to be great. I'm keeping that in the podcast. You should. And then next up, I have new releases for September because the way the podcast is going to fall, we won't have another book episode until after new releases start coming wow, out. Wow, you made a pun. Fall for September. Yeah, I did that on purpose. Yep. Yep. I definitely mm -hmm. did that yep. on purpose. The first one that I'm interested in is The Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. And I really like this author, so this was almost an auto pre-order for me. She's written uh, basically Criminal Minds for YA readers series that I binge read in the spring. Okay. And so this one is going down, I don't know, a different path. And so I'll read the synopsis for you real quick. Avery Grams has a plan for a better future, survive high school, win a scholarship, and get out. 
but her fortunes change in an instant when billionaire Tobias Hawthorne dies and leaves Avery virtually his entire fortune. The catch? Avery has no idea why or even who Tobias Hawthorne is. To receive her inheritance, Avery must move into sprawling, secret passage-filled Hawthorne house where every room bears the old man's touch and his love of puzzles, riddles, and codes. This, like, literally gives me, like, ideas of excitement and joy, but also that really great episode of Community where... Oh, yeah, that does He's got his me. house and he's yeah. got all the secret, like, walkways and things like that. Yeah, I really like the idea of this. There's more to the synopsis, but I don't want to get into it because that gives away some of the plot. But, like, this is right up my alley and we're entering spooky season, so, like, I'm ready for it. Spooky houses in spooky season. Always a spooky win. Yeah, I'm very excited. The next book is an author I haven't read from before, but this is the second book in her Serpent and Dove series, and it's called Blood and Honey by Shelby Mahurin also comes out on September 1st. And from what I understand with the first book, Serpent and Dove is basically a marriage of convenience between two people that are like enemies. So they don't know that they're enemies. And I'll read the short synopsis real quick for Serpent and Dove. Two years ago, Louise Leblanc fled her coven and took shelter in the city of Cesarin, forsaking all magic and living off whatever she could steal. There, witches like Lou are hunted. They are feared and they are burned. Sworn to the church as a chasseur, Reed Diggory has lived his life by one principle. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. His path was never meant to cross with Lou's, but a wicked stunt forces them into an impossible union. Holy matrimony. And there's more, but it goes into that. And then I guess the second one takes off where the first one left, uh, left off. Okay. And I really don't want to look at that in case I decide to read this. I haven't yet, but sometimes I wait until most of the books are out in a series so I can have more of a general consensus for how people feel about the series as a whole before I really dive into it. Helps you from overcommitting to something. Right. And I already have so many open series right now that I've started and not all the books are out yet. Right. So, but one that is coming out also on September 1st that I technically have already read because I got an arc. It's Fable by Adrian Young. And Adrian Young is an author I've read from before and I really enjoy her style of writing. She also wrote Sky in the Deep, which is that Viking story I talked about last time. Yeah. Or possibly the time before. But this one, instead of being about Vikings, is about pirates. And basically, Fable is the... 17-year-old daughter of a pirate king, and he basically abandoned her when she was a child after her mother died and said, take care of yourself and uh, come see me whenever you've gotten your under control and I can give you your inheritance right before I die. Sounds like a very pirate thing to do. Yeah. And so she's had to live off the land and try to figure out how to get from this tiny island back to where her father lives on the mainland and all this other stuff and things go down. It's really good, and I've already pre-ordered it, even though I already read it in arc form, because it's that good. I need to own it so that I can read it before the second one comes out in a year. Gotcha. And then on September 15th, you've got Legend Born by Tracy Dion. I know I've talked about this one before, but I'll go over a quick synopsis real quick. After her mother dies in an accident, 16-year-old Bree Matthews wants nothing to do with her family memories or childhood home. 
a residential program for bright high schoolers at UNC Chapel Hill, seems like the perfect escape until Brie witnesses a magical attack at her very first night on campus. A flying demon feeds on human energies. A secret society of so-called legend-born students that hunt the creatures down. And a mysterious teenage mage who calls himself a Merlin and who attempts and fails to wipe Brie's memory of everything she saw. And then it sort of unlocks her own magic and buried memories and all this sort of stuff. So in a way, it's like boarding school story with magic. Interesting. It's kind of weird that they picked UNC Chapel Hill, but I I, mean, I get it. Like it's a large university. So like secrets could exist. Well, also, you probably get like these southern like creepy vibes going. That could make a lot of sense. And another book I pre-ordered that I'm really excited for, for the spooky vibes, comes out on September 22nd. It is Vampires Never Get Old, and it is an anthology of vampire stories. Isn't that already, like, the theory behind vampires? When you become a vampire, you're the age that you are forever? Well, yes, but it's called Vampires Never Get Old, and the subtitle is Tales with a Fresh Bite. So it's like a twist on vampire stories, that's why it's called vampires never get old gotcha and it's got some authors i've never heard of but it also has a couple that i really enjoy victoria schwab has a story in this and that was enough for me to pre-order it but also danielle clayton has a story in this and so that's really all i need to know oh and rebecca roanhorse also has a story in here and she's pretty popular right now i i know one of those authors yes you do (laughs) i'm sorry guys 11 fresh vampire stories from young adult fiction's leading voices. So that is going to be good. I might do something where I read like a story a day or something like that. Have fun reading it at night, getting all freaked out. It'll end up equaling great times for me, I'm sure, in the future. Yeah, well, if I scream in my sleep, just know it's probably because of vampire stories. Great. And another author I've read from has a book coming out at the end of September. Naomi Novik has a book coming out on September 29th, and it's called A Deadly Education, the first book in the Sholomance series. I don't know very much about this, except that it seems to be dark academia, which is a whole like subcategory of mystery and intrigue, and I love that. So I'll read you a synopsis real quick. A Deadly Education is set at Sholomance, a school for the magically gifted where failure means certain death, for real, until one girl, Elle, begins to unlock its many mysteries and secrets. There are no teachers, no holidays, and no friendships, save strategic ones. Survival is more important than any letter grade, for the school won't allow its students to leave until they graduate or die. The rules are deceptively simple. Don't walk the halls alone, and beware of the monsters who lurk everywhere. So kind of like a darker Harry Potter? Right, it kind of comes across that way, doesn't it? Yeah, I haven't finished Harry Potter, but that sounds a lot like Harry Potter, but way darker. Die or graduate? (laughs) Those are your options. Yeah. It's like either you're going to do well here or you're dead. Like, take your pick. Right. Naomi Novik has a lot of books out that have done well. One of them being Uprooted, which I haven't read, but His Majesty's Dragon, the first in the Temeraire series, I had to read for a fantasy class when I was in college. And that was really good. So you have high hopes. Yes. And then the last book for my new releases for September that I'm interested in is Sky Hunter by Marie Lu, which also comes out September 29th. 
I've heard this one talked about a lot on a lot of the YouTube videos and things lately for people that are, like, excited about Mm -hmm. upcoming books, so. It's the first book in a series, so that's one of the reasons. Another one of the reasons is Marie Lu has written a lot of books, and a lot of books that have done well and been really popular in the booktube community. The most recent one is The Kingdom of Back, which she wrote a long time ago and just now got published. Because I guess she's doing well enough now that her less popular stuff would be okay. It can make money for people, so they're mm-hmm. like, yay! And she's written Legend, which was a series that did well, but I didn't like the first one of. She's written Warcross and its follow-up Wild Card. And I read Warcross and really loved that. I was going to say, I'm literally looking at Warcross right now, so... Yeah. I really enjoyed that one. But let me give you the quick synopsis for Skyhunter. The Krenza Federation has conquered a dozen countries, leaving Mara as one of the last free nations in the world. Refugees flee to its borders to escape a fate worse than death, transformation into mutant war beasts known as ghosts, creatures the Federation then sends to attack Mara. The legendary strikers, Mara's elite fighting force, are trained to stop these monsters, but as the number of ghosts grow and Krenza closes in, defeat seems inevitable. Still, one striker refuses to give up hope. Robbed of her voice and home, Talon Kanami, maybe, knows firsthand the brutality of the Federation. Their cruelty forced her and her mother to seek asylum in a country that finds their people repugnant. She finds comfort only with a handful of fellow strikers who have pledged their lives to one another. Soldiers determined to push Karenza back at all costs. I just love that they're called Strikers. As a sports fan, it's fantastic. Of course, that's where you go with it. (laughs) But no, the book does sound very interesting. I've always kind of liked that coming from nothing to make yourself something type stories. And I feel like that's kind of Started from the bottom, now we're here. Right. Yeah. So that definitely should be an interesting book. It seems very war-like, very strategic, but also, like, there are humans involved here. So, like, you're going to have, like, the emotional side to what happens when you're stuck in a war you think you're going to lose. Right. But that's clearly not everything coming out in September. That's just the stuff that I know is really popular or I'm excited for. Yeah, there's definitely hundreds more books I would imagine that are coming out that month. Every month it seems like they just dump books out. Well, especially in the fall or getting close to like the spooky season, as I call it. Right. Let's jump into what you've been reading. You finished Goblet of Fire. I'm very proud of you. Holy crap, a lot of things happened in the the last bit of the book. What's crazy to me is that the book was so long and honestly, the last 200 or so pages felt like they just zoomed right by. Um, That's what happens when it's full of action. But the chapters also got shorter as you got closer to the end of the book. Mm-hmm. So, like, it felt like I was making a lot more headway, even though reality, I'm reading the same amount of pages, roughly. Yeah. I did read more than the 244 average to, like, the first two weeks anyway. So, mm-hmm. realistically, it was shorter amount of pages I had to read yeah. this week. But... Well, definitely shorter chapters help sort of propel you through the story. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I like Victoria Schwab. So, I think you should end up reading the villain series that I have from her at some point. Realistically, we'll probably end up letting you guys decide what I'm going to go into next. But for right now, we're going to concentrate on the Harry Potter world. Yeah. Basically, we left off at the end of task two, right at the end of it, basically in 
the last episode that we recorded. So you have Ron just like gloating his amazing hero abilities at the beginning of the chapter and it just seems over the top. Well, yeah, it is over the top, but I think you kind of have to give Ron a little bit of leeway because like we discussed last time, he doesn't like the fact that Harry gets to be the center of attention all the time. And now yeah. he finally has some of the limelight. I can only imagine when he got that kiss on the cheek from Fleur de la Cour, he was like, whoa. <laughs> um, I think everyone was like, whoa. Yeah, like, well, she kissed Ron? Ugh, like what? No, um, I mean, just looking at her. Yeah, because, like, well, whoa. Half Vila, you know, that can do that. Um, I thought she was a quarter Vila. Quarter? Part Vila. We'll just leave it at that. Part yeah. Vila, I think, is a safe bet. But he's, like, just egging it on, like, through the open halls and stuff. And, like, everybody's like, yeah, it's Ron, you know. So he's eating that up. Harry also receives a letter from Sirius asking to meet in Hogsmeade in this chapter. I don't know that Harry knew that he was in Hogsmeade at that point in time. I don't believe he did until he got that letter. And he was like, oh, wow, he's here. Yeah. So there was conversation about, like, how he's avoiding people and all those things between him, Ron, and Hermione. And then the Rita Skeeter article comes out and I say the article because there's multiple articles I can't be precise as to how many there have been because there's been far too many well she's just a garbage human being right and she's writing about Hermione pulling at the heartstrings of both Harry and Victor Crumb at the same time as a way to get back at Hermione for the comments she made previously in Hogsmeade everybody's just heckling Hermione and like the fact that anyone can believe that is ridiculous well, they didn't believe that she could be that beautiful either, and clearly that happened, so, you know, it should be a little more fathomable after I that. Guess. But Harry's, like, sitting there denying it to everybody, trying to, like, lighten the load on Hermione as much as he can, which is, like, super honorable of him to just be like, listen, there's never been anything between the two of us. You know, yes, we're very good friends, but that's about as far as it goes. And we roll into where they go to see Dobby in the kitchens, and to thank him for the gillyweed, right? Mm-hmm. Gillyweed. I'm trying to remember all my notes from my last chapter, which I don't have in front of me. Yeah, it's gillyweed. And they bring him six pairs of socks that they bought at Hogsmeade, which I think is hilarious. They're That's just like, cute. They literally were picking out like random, like the weirdest socks they could find is what they were buying. And I'm like, that's totally a Dobby thing to collect weird socks. I think one of the pairs, it like yells at you when it gets too stinky. Yeah. I was like, man, I can't have those for Steven. They'd instantly start screaming. Oh, (laughs) humor here for the listeners, clearly. And then they obviously, while they're in Hogsmeade, see Sirius in his dog form and then also go and join him in his Cave. cave. Yeah. So that he can change back into himself and actually talk to him like human to human. And Sirius they realize he's has been eating a rough life, man. Well, he's been eating rats in mm. the caves. So like I was just getting to that. So like it's like wow, like man. You must really love your godson. Yeah, I wouldn't eat rats for anybody. I'm sorry. No. Like no one. Maybe it's different when you're in dog form, you don't mind it so much. What well, right, it's just like a snack, right? I guess. I, guess. I, I don't know. But while you're seeing Dobby get the thanks, you see drunk Winky on butterbeer. She's drunk on butterbeer, which obviously having had butterbeer, well, wanting to have butterbeer, we didn't end up doing that, did we? We didn't do butterbeer while we were in uh, the Wizarding World. I don't think we did. I don't think we did, no. Just because neither of us really like butterscotch, and I think that's the flavor they go for yeah, with yeah. it. Also, there's supposed to be actual alcohol in the book's version of butterbeer, right. whereas butterbeer in the parks has none. 
Right. So zero, that's zero, zero, zero percent alcohol. Yeah. yeah. And like in the books, it's supposed to be a very minuscule amount, but you've got these beings that are so small that mm-hmm. if they drink six bottles of butterbeer, that's drunk. So it's like the difference between you and me drinking, I guess, <laughs> in some sort or another. Yeah, that's um, exactly what I'm talking about. Fair comparison. I'm just mm-hmm. going to go on a limb. But yeah, she's super drunk on butterbeer and was like spewing out all these nonsense things about protecting the master's secret. And Mm. it's crazy because Ron, Hermione, and Harry, none of them think like, I wonder what Mr. Crouch's secret is. Yeah, no. It doesn't click for any of them. Hermione's just like, we need to take care of her. She's not doing well, blah, 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 blah. And like Ron and Harry are like, why? She's doing this to herself, like type of response. So, which, you know, Hermione again, trying to save all the elves the house elves so also during that chapter this is actually a really loaded chapter in 28 they go down to the quidditch field and see the maze starting to be constructed i like how they're all horrified all the hogwarts champions are horrified well at the time when they see it it's like they can climb over it so like it's not that bad but at the same time my thought was man it would be a pain to bring the quidditch field back after having this maze grow through the grass like that yeah yeah like I can't, I can't That's fathom. That's what magic is for. Clearly, because yeah. if it wasn't, holy crap! You know, like the comparison of like ice rinks over basketball courts, or basketball courts over ice rinks. Actually, that's usually the that's way they do it. That's how it goes. Yes. It's just crazy to me to think that that's an option. Like that, it would be an easy option, <laughs> no mm-hmm. less. And then you obviously have them heading back from the field. Fleur de Lacour and Cedric break off from the group. And Victor Crumb and Harry start walking towards the forest to have a chat. I just don't understand what Victor Crumb has to worry about with Harry and Hermione. I know that the article would have brought some questions, but like, you're a renowned international Quidditch player and you're worried about a little 14-year-old boy? A renowned Quidditch handsome man. Let's call it what it is, player. I mean, it looks like he's gotten his nose broken multiple times. I don't know how handsome that makes you. Maybe ask Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. But I just, what do you have to worry about? I don't understand. Yeah. It's definitely funny that he's jealous a little bit, but it's also endearing and sweet, I guess, to an extent where he's just like, I, I care for well, her this much and this is weird and I don't like it. Like, I mean, as long as he's not being possessive, then yeah, I think that that is sort of sweet. Well, in the book, he doesn't come across possessive yeah, no. by any means. It's just like concern, like, does she not care for me anymore? Yeah, like yeah. type of a fear. Well, they also have a language barrier between him and Hermione to a degree. You don't say. You can't even say her name right. Hermione. Yeah. So I could understand him having some concerns from that aspect, I guess. Right. And while they're down there, they run into lunatic Mr. Crouch. And I say lunatic because he's lost his marbles. Yeah. He's blurting out all sorts of craziness at trees, rocks, and Harry, as it turns out. Well, so. I'm thinking he's talking to Percy and talking about his son and wife who died and it's like clearly not all there yeah and then trying to get dumbledore's attention when dumbledore isn't there about how the fact that voldemort is back yeah it was a weird scene harry obviously runs leaves victor crumb with mr crouch which should have been capable of handling his business down there obviously we find out why he wasn't later but my question is why did harry not run for hagrid hagrid's house is right there like unless Hagrid was up at like doing something in the castle I don't understand why he wouldn't try to find Hagrid first right or even Madame Maxime yeah because like they say later on the carriage is right there yeah and then he gets up there and then Snape is a punk 
again, go figure. Snape not being a punk is never going to happen. So yeah. he won't let Harry to go speak to Dumbledore. And then finally he's just like, fine, I'll leave. And then he gets up there and Dumbledore is like, what's going on? What's going on? And he lays it all out for him. Actually, what happens is Dumbledore Appears. runs into them. Yeah, comes down the stairs. Yeah. And they run down there really quick. And Moody's on his way already behind him just slightly. And when they get there, Moody's like, well, this is what happened. So they find Crumb passed out and crouched long gone. And to where nobody knows, he's just gone. Then they get Hagrid and Hagrid takes Harry back to the entryway of the common room and goes, don't leave here. Don't send, don't send any letters out. Just stay here tonight. Wait till tomorrow to send out your letters. Like, how do you know I'm sending letters? Well, Dumbledore said that down. Yeah. Yeah. And so he stays overnight and then the next morning immediately goes and sends a letter to Sirius with the update as to what's going on. Yeah. And you also have the twins coming up there and you find out that they're blackmailing somebody. You don't know who at that point, but kind of Being suspicious. Yeah. Harry later that day ends up having a nice daydream fit in divination class and it's a spooky one at that. He's riding on the back of an owl through this house. To the house and through the house, I guess is the right way to explain it. And then... He sees Wormtail being tortured by who he, he believes is Voldemort. He doesn't know because he never actually sees him. Well, he hears his voice, yeah. which is pretty straightforward. It's pretty distinct. Yeah. Yeah, especially after you attach the voice to like the movies. Mm-hmm. It's for sure distinct. And he wakes up with a scar just like in all sorts of pain from it. And everybody's like, what's wrong with you? You just collapsed. Basically collapsed. And then all of a sudden you're like screaming while you were just sitting down in this room and everybody was staring at him and he goes well i'm gonna go to see madame pomfrey in the medical wing and then ends up going to see dumbledore instead yeah well that's what he was told to do yeah so he gets to dumbledore's office now that he knows the password gets in relatively easy after a couple guesses of candies yeah i I think it's silly that dumbledore's security passwords are candies as dark as this series gets, it's still supposed to be silly at times. So yes, that is silly. Yeah. And he gets to the door and he hears Cornelius Fudge, Moody, and Dumbledore discussing what happened the night before. Then Moody sees him through the door with his eye because he mm-hmm. can see through things. And was like, maybe Harry would like to come in. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that bit. Like Harry's like, oh, they know I'm here. Yeah. So he comes inside and the three of them leave to go check out for clues down by the forest and leave Harry there in the office. And then like it gets weird. Like this portion of scenes was like just strange for me. Like I know why it existed. It's there to create more mystery about like who's the bad guy and who's the good guy and all well, this stuff. Well, it also gives you a lot of backstory when Harry goes through the pensive. So yeah. or the pensive, depending on who you are. I was gonna call it pensive, so I'm right there on the first one with you there. Yeah. You see Dumbledore standing up for Snape, going like, he was a spy for us the whole time, you know? Well, not the whole time, but yeah. Yeah, for a good chunk of it, to say the least. Enough to make him valuable. And so you see Harry start to be like, oh, maybe Snape isn't the bad guy for like a split second. Like, it starts to click for him. Dumbledore comes back and finds out that he's in the pensive and sits down next to Harry without Harry even realizing it. And he goes, we should probably go back to my office. Yeah, and he's like, what? Like, so shocked. Sits back in the office. I really don't want to go deeper on the pensive just because I feel like the spoilers are endless if I do. 
um, we've been talking in depth about this series the whole time, so I don't see how anyone wouldn't know we would talk in depth about this, so that would have been a spoiler warning. On top of that, this series has been out for how long? Yeah. So... So you obviously have Crouch, who son is being put on trial and taken away by Dementors. Along with the Lestranges and another wizard I can't remember the name of. Yeah, I can't remember his name either, but there's four of them. Yeah. That are dragged off. And he's, like, begging for mercy, you know, from his dad. His dad's like, you're no son of mine. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the bit you get about Karkaroff trying to give a bunch of names so he can get out. But they're all names they've already either killed and or captured, so... Or ones who have been cleared. Yeah, which definitely leads you to believe that Karkaroff is still kind of a bad dude a little bit, but maybe not as bad. He's just trying to, like... He's supposed to come across as a bad guy in the books the whole time, so yeah. And then we start getting back into chapter 31, which is more about, like, preparation for the final task, the Mm -hmm. final task itself. So Harry, Hermione, and Ron are all practicing, helping Harry practice hexes in, like, empty classrooms. Yeah. As often as they can between, like, their lunch periods and classes, which I think is fantastic. And poor Ron is, like, the test dummy for almost all of them. Hermione somehow managed to sneak out. I think it's probably because she's more or less the teacher out of the three to try to help Harry learn these things. Because, like, she's the one that's capable of doing most of these things, I would imagine, before yeah. Harry could. Then the families of the champions arrive before the final task. And Harry's like, I hope the Dursleys did not show up. I don't know that they could have. And I don't know why Harry would think they could because as Hermione has clearly stated before muggles would just see a bunch of ruins with signs telling them to keep out so like yeah I don't know how that would even be possible and honestly let's be serious they wouldn't be caught dead anywhere near that much magic use yeah ever they'd rather kill themselves I'm certain of it the surprise for Harry is that Miss Weasley and Bill Weasley are there to greet him when he comes back there. And, and it's like now all the Weasley children have come to Hogwarts for at least a little bit in this book. Yeah, and I think that's great, honestly. I think that's fantastic. And so then we start the third task. So the they're brought down there after the meals um, with the family members before everybody else starts heading down to the stadium. And they're prepared for the maze. And while they're going through like the rules and stuff related to it, they start hearing the crowds filling the stands and things like that while they're in the tent preparing for all this chaos of unknown that's coming. And they're going to start based on points. So you have Cedric and Harry starting at the same time, which is funny because they've kind of been working a little bit together through all this yeah. already. And so, like, it was weird for me to not see them go the same direction when they went into the maze. And then the second person to go is Crumb, right? And then Floor is the last one. Yes. In. So... You see them running into the maze. They start to come up on, like, certain challenges. You can hear other people being challenged by things. And Harry's, like, running around like, I haven't ran into anything yet. Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And then a Dementor is there. And Only it's not a Dementor. Bum, bum, bum. It's, it's a, a Boggart. Uh, which he realizes after he tries to treat it like it's a Dementor and nothing happens. He does wish that the deer or the stag... stag would have continued on with him to light the path a little bit better because it was very dark in the maze itself. Well, also, he was saying that it's very creepy feeling and it would be nice to have something else positive there. Well, they said that the maze was soundproof too, so you can't even hear the crowd. You don't know really what's going on unless it's, like, legitimately within earshot of Mm -hmm. you. So he defeats the Boggart, disguised as a Dementor, and then comes running along and hears Fleur scream. 
and there's like this wall of golden mist so he's like what what I like there's clearly something in there that's going to attack me and he runs in and he's the whole world is upside down his feet are stuck to the ceiling basically so it's just a flip-flop of the way gravity works inside there almost and remind me if I'm correct I don't believe he finds Fleur does he no he never finds Fleur so he comes through and he's like well I can't find her I guess we'll keep on moving on he's also distracted by Crumb using the Cruciatus curse on Cedric right that's a big distraction for him and then he ends up burning a hole through the side of the maze in order to stupefy Crumb and I love stupefy as a an actual spell. I think it's fantastic. Technically, he uses the reductor curse on the hedge. On the hedge? Yes. But then he uses stupefy on crumb. Yes. Yeah. And then shoots up the sparks so that they come to collect crumb. Yeah. So at that point, it's just the two of them left because they figure flu is out based off of what had already happened. And they're like, okay, well, let's keep moving forward. And then they come to a split and like, well, split off again, just like we did at the beginning. Yeah. And so... Harry's running along still. He ends up running alongside a... Well, the scroot was earlier, right? The blast-edited scroot. Yeah, this is a sphinx that he runs into. Yeah, he runs into the sphinx, and the sphinx has a riddle for him, basically. Harry has to solve it. And Harry's sitting there, like, having the sphinx read it back, like, a little at a time, a little at a time, a little at a time, a little mm-hmm. at a time, so that, like, he can put it all together. Well, like you said, Hermione is the one that's good at this sort of thing. Yeah, it's definitely not his expertise needless to say he finally figures it out gets past the sphinx that it was a spider right i think was yeah. the actual answer or something like that and so he continues on because it's a shortcut so like he figures hey i'm well in the lead this is gonna be great i think the irony of it is that the shortcut clue gave a clue as to what was next and harry just didn't put it together yeah there's a shortcut but there's something lurking for you at the mm-hmm. end they're coming to the end and he sees cedric making a run for it basically and, like, it's a clear path. But Cedric clearly doesn't see the spider that's coming out of his blind spot that's about to attack him. So he Harry attacks the spider while shouting at Cedric to, like, look out. Cedric nearly dodges the spider. And the spider, after being attacked by Harry, goes after him. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly you're the bigger threat. I'm going to come jack you up. I like that Harry uses Expelliarmus to get out of the spider's grip. But then, like, that's got to hurt, falling down that far. Yeah. Ends up breaking his leg in the process of it. Yeah. And Cedric realizes that he has a heart because he's a Hufflepuff. And he has a heart because he's human. He's doing this, what he's about to do, because he's a Hufflepuff. Yeah. On top of that, Harry has saved him twice already. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I owe you one. Technically more than one. Yeah. And the two of them use the same spell together to defeat the spider. Harry's like limping along the hedge and Cedric basically comes to him and goes like, well, we should, you should grab it. You've saved me twice now. I don't deserve it. You clearly should be the winner. And, and Harry doesn't like, want to have a fight over who should grab it. Just he wants it to be over. Yeah. So they decide to grab it together. And the last, basically the very last sentence of that chapter is, it was a port key. Well, yeah, it hinted at that. Yeah. yeah so they disappear off the face of the maze to an unknown area, which we later find out is a graveyard outside of the Riddle House. That's exciting. While they're trying to get their wits about themselves, they see somebody walking, carrying something small in their hands towards them in a a hooded robe. Firstly, graveyard, hooded robe, GTFO. Right. What are you doing standing around like, 
I wonder who it is. Maybe they can help us. I think part of the reason they're so slow to act is that they're like, oh, is this part of it? Is this part of the third task? Right. So, plus, Harry's a 14-year-old boy. I could see him being a little confused. At the time, we don't know it's Wormtail, but you very quickly find out it is. Kills Cedric Diggory with one of the no longer allowed to be used curses for very obvious reasons. Instant death is not acceptable. It's the Avada... It's the killing curse, the, the killing incantation curse. of which is Avada Kedavra. Avada Kedavra, yeah. <laughs> so they kill Cedric, which, like, I almost cried. I know, I saw you almost cry. You were very emotional about it. I'm just thinking, wait till you read the other books. It's going to break my heart even more. Yep. Yeah. And stomp all over in the street. I will tell you that Cedric's death did not make me cry, but I was literally sobbing at the ends of the other books. So. Yay. (laughs) Then Wormtail uses a a spell to wrap Harry around a tombstone. Mm-hmm. Which, if I remember correctly, is Tom Riddle's dad's tombstone. Yes. So that's an interesting place to be tied up against. Especially Harry realistically doesn't know at that point that they're named after each other, if I remember correctly. Well, he doesn't really know anything about Tom Riddle's past Yeah. at that point. So there's that fun stuff. Then also in that chapter you start to see Wormtail build up this fire underneath the cauldron and big enough for a human to sit at the bottom of yeah mm-hmm. which is gigantic right firstly how did how do you move it like obviously magic magic i have to keep remembering this it's you have magic. to remember they have magic everything can be done via magic but they're in a town of humans though so like of the muggles so like you have to probably do it at night with magic i would imagine because like you can't well, do it, it during the night. daytime if they see the cauldron just like floating it well, is nice. I understand, but in the scene, it's like it's already there. It's not that they're like, poof, a cauldron. Well, it was dusk when they went into the maze, yeah. so setting up would have uh, not taken as long as it took them to get to the maze. Yeah, and so he summons dust from his father's, Tom Riddle's father's grave, and then cuts off his own hand. Like, dude, commitment much? Like, I wouldn't. And this whole time, Voldemort has already been placed in this cauldron of boiling water. Not yet pretty sure he was already placed in it before all the things were placed in it but i'm gonna go grab the book because i believe the whole time harry is actually like i hope he drowns i hope he drowns so yes he was put in there and then the ingredients were added wormtail started the whole bone of the father unwillingly given success the boy was right that never happens and it's i'm not only right i'm right at harry potter things which is beyond fantastic i win one one point for ravenclaw we're both in Ravenclaw. Ten points deducted from Ravenclaw for the other side. But you only get one point? Yep, we lose. That's not fair. It should be like a hundred points to Ravenclaw for me to get something right about Harry Potter, let's be honest. Yeah, true. So, for once I'm right, in this instance, they he was thrown in before the ingredients went in after the water got to a steady boil. I wonder how much cooking he does. Yeah, and especially in a cauldron that size, you could like cook for the whole town. If it's human size, you gotta think. So, he summons the dirt... Dirt goes in. Then he cuts off his own hand. Technically, it's bone dust. Bone dust? Because it's bone of the father. Yeah. And then he walks over with a blade and cuts open Harry's forearm and takes the blood and puts it in. Mm -hmm. And then magic happens. Well, it's a really dark spell potion. I don't know what you would call it. Yeah. Way to get his body back. Yeah. And... Ta-da! Comes out a skinny, tall man. Pale. 
pale Slit skinny nose, toes. red eyed. Yeah, out of the the actual vat of stuff. That's where we end that chapter. Gotta go back. I to gotta say, very disproportionate amount of ingredients. You just have some bone dust. You've got Wormtail's flesh in the form of his hand. A couple drops of Harry's blood, and then the cauldron's gigantic and full of water. Yeah, the uh, mixed proportions are probably a little small. Yeah, it's weird. In chapter 34, you have the Death Eaters arrive, or 33 Death Eaters arrive, correct myself. He summons the Death Eaters through the dark mark on Wormtail's arm. Yep, and not all of them appear. So there's empty gaps between where the circle of them are standing. Well, some of them are still in Azkaban. Yeah. Some are dead. And some have given up on him. Chosen not to return. Yep. For various reasons. And Voldemort basically starts lecturing all of them. I swear, he just likes to hear himself talk. Yeah. What's with villains and talking? He's talking about all the things that Wormtail and him went through and how this secret insider in Hogwarts has been helping him and all this nonsense. You're supposed to think of a couple people before you think of who it actually is. Oh, I'll be honest. I never thought it was... Who it is. Who it is. Yeah. Yeah. And he starts torturing Harry a little bit, like just kind of messing with him, toying with him while he's tied up. Cat playing with its food. Yeah. Then he challenges him to a duel, like, well, I shouldn't do this. We should be fair about this. We should be gentlemen type of a a speech that he gives. He doesn't mean that. No, he doesn't. He knows clearly he's more powerful than Harry. So it's just like, it should be a cakewalk. And then the duel commences. The duel. I'm really sad that they didn't, like, put their backs to each other and walk three steps apart and then... You want Harry to put his back toward Voldemort? Yeah. No. It's a duel. No. He plays dirty. I'm not putting my back to him. Yeah. So, at the beginning of the duel, very much one-sided in the sense that it is very much Voldemort, like, putting Harry on his heels. And then they both attack each other at the same time and their two beams collide in the middle and it gets very interesting from there because it's described as like becoming very painful and it's like vibrating the the wands and it's getting harder and harder for harry to hold and same for voldemort they're both struggling with holding each other's like their own wands and you start to get ghosts of people that Voldemort has killed coming out of Voldemort's wand. It's more of an echo is what Dumbledore calls it later. Yeah. And those echoes defend Harry long enough to kind of escape the golden dome where the duel is taking place that was caused by the two of their wands colliding into each other's. Their spells colliding into one another. The whole time Harry's running back through the graveyard trying to like Zigzag. zigzag back and forth. Avoid all the Death Eater spells. Yeah, and like you hear him zipping past his head over and over. And I'm like, action, 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 action. Here he goes. He's running, running. Yeah. And like my brain was really capable of picturing all this happening and like just. You like action. Oh, go figure. I'm a boy. You know, it's kind of what happens. As a guy, we enjoy that stuff. So. And he gets back to Diggory's body and he's trying to drag Diggory to the Triwizard Cup. And that's. Clearly not happening very well because Diggory is much larger than Harry is. And Harry has a broken leg. And a broken leg on top of it. Yeah. To top it all off. And so he uses an Osseo spell to summon the cup to his hand. And just as Voldemort's about to put him out of his misery, he ports back to the field. 
Yeah. And you pointed out to me earlier that you didn't understand how the port key worked in this. And I pointed out that it is kind of a plot hole, sort of. There are ways to explain it. Yeah, the port key theory on it, I feel like, is really messy and muddy. Well, my number one theory is because you argued that port keys only go one way, so how is this possible? And my argument is that it was made into not just a port key there, but also a port key back so that Voldemort could take it back to Hogwarts and wreak havoc Yeah, could you imagine the ambush of all the Death Eaters and him just appeared? But the flaw with that is he doesn't want to face Dumbledore. Like, Dumbledore is the only man he's ever feared, is constantly said throughout the series. So there's the flaw with that line of thought. And it's said kind of, like, in a light form. Like, the scene where they're battling with the wands, clearly Voldemort is not back to his full strength by any means, so he wouldn't have been ready to fight Voldemort. I mean, that's I mean, a uh, theory. Fight Dumbledore. That's a theory. I've never considered him not to be back into top shape after getting his body back well, you gotta magically. Think, you gotta think that Harry Harry's magic in the current year is not going to be capable. Well, you're not considering information that hasn't been provided to you yet. So I can't explain anything else outside of just saying I don't think you're right in that. Well, understand that obviously I'm right currently based on the information that has been given to me. No, you think you're correct based on information you have and do not have the information to realize that you are incorrect. Okay. They reappear, obviously Cedric Diggory's body is limp because he's dead and harry's like trying to be super predictive protective of cedric's body because he hasn't come completely to after coming back either he's sort of just in shock i think at this point yeah and dumbledore is like trying to cut off diggory's family before they get to the body through the mass hysteria of everybody like oh my god yeah he's dead moody more or less picks up harry and carries him back to his office and then things happen things get dark again yeah you find out that obviously moody's not the real moody and that he's really the spy that's been in the castle the whole time for voldemort and that he's like all these times you came so close to catching me and you never did yeah i think this again is a flaw with villains is that the they're humble, like the unhumble brag the unhumble brag yeah, yeah. And they're just like i've got to tell you how close you were but not quite because i'm smarter than you ha 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 neener 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 type of a speech more exactly. or less yeah and it bought time for snape minerva and dumbledore to come to harry's rescue yes i don't know why you get to call mcgonagall by her first name but yes why not and they save Harry, and they, Dumbledore is like, since he's unconscious right now, go and get, tell Snape, go and get me truth serum. And so he goes and does his thing. Um, McGonagall sent off on a mission, too. I don't remember for what exactly it did. To get Sirius up to his office. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. You'll find a black dog waiting in Haggard's pumpkin patch. Take him up to my office. Yeah. And she just accepts that without, like, saying anything or thinking anything's weird. Well, she's always been very loyal to Dumbledore, so I'm not shocked by that. Like, it was I like, would have some questions. Do you want me to take a dog up to your office? What yeah, the hell is happening? Absolutely. Though I would think as an Animagus, I would consider the fact that that could be an Animagus. Yeah. So they go through the interrogation with the fake Moody and end up finding that he's locked up the real professor who wasn't really a professor at all because he's... He never spent a day on that job. Yeah. 
and he's been locked up in a really cool chest with like six different sections. Yeah, that makes that okay. Yeah. I don't think it's okay. I think it's just really cool like that it had six different keys for... Seven. Seven? Yep. Separate keys. They find him in the sixth one, right? They find him in the seventh one. Do they? It's the last one you look in. Okay. I won't argue that. I don't want to try to be wrong considering I was just right. So we'll leave that one. Let it lie. Well, the only thing I'll say is seven is a very magical number in Harry Potter. Yeah. For some unknown reason. Well, because seven is also a very well-known mythical slash religious number in regular life as well. Yeah. Either way, they find him in this weird hole inside of the chest and they get him out and send him off to the hospital wing for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Like a medical wing is important for somebody who's been for literal months just being kept and starved out more or less in this hole. Yeah. Because he's already old, so like starving old people is not okay. Starving anyone is not okay. (laughs) But old people particularly, it's much worse, I feel like. So they end up going back up to the office and catching up with Sirius and Dumbledore. Then the conversation happens between Dumbledore and Fudge. Yeah. And Fudge is like, there's no way Voldemort's coming, you know. And this is all taking place in the hospital wing, I believe, at that point, because Harry's down there with the Weasleys and Hermione. Yeah. At a certain point, Harry sits up and goes, you're an idiot. Like, literally, I just experienced all these things. Why would I make this up? As an argument, more or less. And it sort of becomes the moment that twists the relationship between Fudge and Harry because Fudge is so adamant that it's not possible that the only way he can defend his line of thought is to say that Harry's a liar. Yeah. It's not the first time he's lied either is what he makes the argument of. He's used to making up tall tales. The crazy thing is everybody else is like, you're an idiot. Go away. We don't want to talk to you anymore type of attitude, more or less. And then Miss Weasley forces him to take the rest of his medicine and goes into a deep sleep of nothing thoughts, like just empty a thoughts. dreamless sleep yeah. Motion, yeah. Then you wake up, he wakes up, and you kind of are getting back to reality a little bit. Um, the final meal occurs, obviously, with all the parties available except for Karkaroff, who is nowhere to be found. He has disappeared in, to protect himself. Well, he ran away because yeah. he didn't want to face Voldemort. Right. The new Moody, or the OG Moody, call it what he is, not the fake one, the OG, is sitting at the table and you can still see that he's a little, like, frazzled and, like, really on edge about, like, everybody around him. I would be. Super paranoid. Then Dumbledore, just in front of everybody, is like, Voldemort's back, like, speech. Obviously, he takes it a little more lightly. He doesn't just, like, blurt it out, but he might as well have because it's like a bunch of children in a room. What did you expect him to do? Do you not want them to be prepared? Yeah, I, I agree. They should be prepared. But at the same time, it's like the thing that your parents were so afraid of that you've never really seen necessarily in your lifetime. He's here. Because you got to think like the twins are what, two years older than yes. Ron and Harry? So like they were like maybe three years old when Voldemort was around back then. They would be three when he disappeared. Yeah. So like they don't have any memory of Voldemort shy of just the tales they've heard. Yeah. So, and you have Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle who are, like, mocking Dumbledore and, like, oh, yeah, it's not going to be that bad type of a thing because he's going to protect us. And they end up giving a speech in the train how, you know, Ron, or, sorry, Harry and Hermione should be worried because they're either mixed blood or mud blood, mm-hmm. which we don't like to use those terms either of here. But everybody puts a hex on them all at once, the three of them, and I think that's hilarious, including the twins. it's the three of them and Fred and George who were in the hallway. Yeah. 
they're basically just like dragged out the twins drag them out of the actual car and just leave them in the hallway yeah <laughs> all jacked up i feel like that's what you'd have to do at that point right they're just in the way harry gives the money to fred and george to start their business because he's like i really don't want it i'll just throw it i don't like yeah who cares well and it. he's been trying to pawn it off on everyone yeah. All the time. Because he feels like he doesn't deserve it because he should be sharing it with the Diggories and they didn't want it. But he does give money to Fred and George to open their joke shop. Yep. And that's kind of where more or less we leave everything. You know, he's back at the Dursleys again for a shortened summer, hopefully, is what, you know, the Miss Weasley was saying. Yeah. I was going to say something, but that is a spoiler, so I'm not going to say it. Sounds good. All right. No spoilers. Beyond the spoilers I already gave, if you've never read the book. I'm avoiding giving you spoilers in particular. I appreciate that. But next, we're going to be watching Goblet of Fire this week, and I will be taking extensive notes on how exactly it's all wrong. And we'll talk about that next week. It'll probably involve a lot of me going, that's different, right? And then you're going, yes, <laughs> it's re- it's different. So yeah. But overall, I enjoyed the book. I felt like the density was m- more than obviously the previous ones. But at the same time, I really realized that it was necessary. Yeah. There was so much going on in different sides of every spectrum that like if it didn't have all that, it would have not been a good book. Well, it also wouldn't have made sense if you didn't get like the backstory with the pensive and. Yeah. Like, all this other stuff that, at the time, you don't necessarily understand how it connects to the story. And then by the end of the book, you're like, oh, yeah, that was necessary. Yeah. So. But, yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I see why you said it was difficult to decide between this one and the previous book as to which one was going to be my favorite. Mm -hmm. Because I really liked Prisoner, but I also really liked this book. Yeah. I would almost put them side by side a little bit. I think for action's sake, I actually liked this book more than the third one. Yeah. I think that's what's going to make it number one in my eyes so far. Well, that'll make watching the movie fun for you. Yeah. Probably make me hate the movie just like it did with the last one. part of the reason I hate Prisoner of Azkaban the movie is because I love the book so much. So that'll be a good time. But what things have you read this week? Well, I did all the things I said I was going to read last week, which was a surprise. I don't know how I made time for all of that. But I first read The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which it's about time I read it. It's been out for three years. I gave it 4.5 stars, which I never thought I would have because this is kind of a contemporary novel, though it is sort of like an activism book as well. I don't know how to describe it, categorize it. Gotcha. But basically... Star is a girl who has lived with her mother and father in this sort of bad neighborhood, a poor neighborhood, and Mm -hmm. she goes to like this fancy suburban prep school that her parents have put her in on scholarship so that she can try to have a better life when she graduates high school. And she's on her spring break when her friend she's riding in the car with gets pulled over by a cop. And the cop makes him get out of the car, all this other stuff. Cop ends up shooting him whenever he goes back to the front of the car to check on how Star is doing sitting in the car. And then there's a lot of stuff that's really relevant to today and it really, really shouldn't be about police brutality and how police get away with murder. Yeah. And then there's also this issue Star has with being too black in the white society that she runs in with school, but being too white 
in the black mm. society she runs in Outside in her school. neighborhood. Yeah. And so it's one of those things that I necessarily can't speak to because obviously I'm a white girl from Oklahoma. I have no idea about any of this. Right. But it's one of those things that parts of it can make you uncomfortable if this isn't something that you experience. And that's kind of the point. Oh, 100% the point. And so... While there were moments where I was uncomfortable with certain things that were happening or I didn't understand, it's all because I'm a white girl from Oklahoma and I'm supposed to be reading this from an outsider perspective because that's exactly what I have. That was the purpose of the book for sure. And so it was good. It was hard to read at times. But again, that's the point. And the second thing that I read, I won't call it a book, is The Old Guard Book One Opening Fire Bindup of Editions 1 through 5, Explosion. Yeah, I think I'm going to probably read a little bit of that this week. Maybe all of it, I'll be honest. It was a really quick read. Yeah. So I think you could quickly read that before we get to watching The Goblet of Fire. Well, considering next week's episode is the conversation of Goblet of Fire movie versus book adaptation it should give me the time to hopefully read that in between yeah but it is done by greg rucka and leandro fernandez i rated it four stars which is a lot for me to give a comic it's a lot for me to give a comic even if the comic is a bind up and i feel like i don't enjoy it as much as i enjoyed the movie i really liked the movie a lot so I'm not surprised that the comics didn't live up to it, especially since I think comics and graphic novels don't tell enough of a well-rounded story for me. Yeah. Because if I can read a 500-page novel and say there's not enough in this novel, then how am I going to read a 40-page comic and think that's enough of a comic? Right. So it's partially just me being me in that I want more story, and it's partially just the way the comic books work. I did enjoy that they tell more of Booker's and Andy's backstories that you don't get in the movie, but they also change something that the character Quinn in the movies is supposed to be in the books. Like, the transition of her character from the comics to the movie is not quite accurate. But it's still really well done, and it's really true to the comics, despite those things. That's good. I also read Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which we have just discussed, and discussed in other episodes. I thought it was kind of crazy that you had also finished the same book in one week's time that I read. We finished the same book on the same day. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I read almost 1,400 pages in a week, and you read 734 pages in three weeks. But that's all right. In fairness, I have about this much time to read, and I do usually read in it, so yeah, I... you're doing what you can. Exactly. That's all that matters. But I'm also going to try to fit in three books next week. One is an arc for The Bookweaver's Daughter by Malavika Kanan? 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 And it's a book that technically was self-published in 2018 and is getting actually published, published this year in September. And I'll read you a quick synopsis. In the ancient Indian kingdom of Kasmira, stories don't begin with once upon a time. Instead, Kasmiris start a, sto- a woman's story with those who came before her, her parents, grandparents, ancestors. For 14-year-old Rhea Kandhari, her story always starts the same, with the fabled line of book weavers tracing centuries back to the lost yogis. 
the mythical guardians of Kazmiri culture who created the world itself. As a result, Rhea's entire life has been shaped by words, words of mystique and mythology, words of magic that allow her father, the bookweaver, to bring his stories to life, words of power that make him the target of tyrants who will stop at nothing to destroy magic in Kazmira. Interesting. Yeah, and it's pretty short, so I'm thinking I'll read that along with two other books this week. The other ones being The Shadow Between Us by Trisha Levenseller, which I've discussed before as being the Slytherin e-book that came out recently. It came out this year. It's about a girl who wants to kill the king in order to take over, but in order to do that, she has to save the king from another assassination attempt. Yeah, that's that sounds like a mess. Yeah. It sounds like it should be fun. It's a standalone, I believe, so that'll be good to read. And it'll also be pretty quick, I'm thinking. Yeah. And the last book I want to get to this next week is The Tourist Attraction by Sarah Morgenthaler. And it's the one that takes place in Alaska. And basically, this girl goes to Alaska as, like, part of her bucket list. And she runs into a local who has a diner called The Tourist Trap. And he basically hates tourists and doesn't want anything to do with them. And they end up falling in love or something. (laughs) So he hates tourist traps, but then ends up at one and then like immediately was like, oh, I leave. Well, he runs the diner called the Tourist Trap. And that's how he meets her, I assume. And he hates tourists? Yeah. In the thing, it says he named it as a joke. Okay, clearly. So like... I hope so, because like otherwise it's like, wow... But I think it should be good. You have two fantasy novels and then a quick contemporary. So I think I can get through all that. Plus, on top of that, it's about 500 pages less than what I read this past week. Yeah. So it should be good. But I think that's going to be everything for us this week. We'll talk about Goblet of Fire movie adaptation next week. I'm, I'm excited to see it. And based on what you've told me now, I'm not. So, you know, it's You're kind welcome. of been ruined maybe a little bit but i'm excited to watch it nonetheless but we appreciate you guys giving us a listen we'll continue to update on the social medias which will all be linked down below in the show notes and we'll catch you next time bye bye